You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. And uh, welcome everybody. If you'd like to open up your Bibles to John chapter 7, 37 this morning. And uh, I was watching on the, the news um, last night and they showed again this morning that the, a lot of water is coming down from Queensland, from flooding rains up in Queensland down through the Darling River and the Menindee Lakes in outback New South Wales are full of water for the first time in uh, five years or more, I believe. Uh, an enormous system of lakes up there. And they referred to it as life-giving water in the ad. And I thought, that's very appropriate because I'll be talking about life-giving water this morning. So as I suggested last week, Jesus really is a troublemaker. I've told you that a number of times now. And uh, part of the reason I bring it up and bring it up so often is so that it might dispel any notion that you might have that Jesus is soft, that he's wimpy, that he's compliant. Jesus is anything but a cuddly teddy bear. Partly the reason I bring that up so often is so that you understand why the Jews hated him and wanted to kill him. Jesus was relentless in his attacks on their hypocrisy. And Jesus didn't care about pleasing people just as he was never frightened to criticise people. You didn't want to get on the wrong side of Jesus. And let me warn you before we go any further this morning, you don't want to get on the wrong side of Jesus today either. He's still just as fierce and uncompromising today as he was back then 2,000 years ago. It's just that Jesus is also patient. As his sidekick Peter warns us in, uh, in 2 Peter 3.10, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. But in the preceding verse to that, in verse 9, Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Just as Jesus was relentless in his attacks on his hypocrisy, so he's also re relentless in the mercy he offers to all who would come to him. Now Jesus can't help himself, it seems. It's not enough that he says things that are confusing and things that are controversial and things that are hard for the Jews to accept. He prefers to say these challenging things at times when the most people will hear him. He reserves his most controversial statements for the big events, the major feasts, when there are crowds of people around. So not only does he get his message through to the leaders who despise him, but he gets all the common people talking about him as well. Now the Jews had a number of feasts in Jerusalem during the course of the year. There were three in particular that attracted the largest crowds, partly because they were the most important on the religious calendar and partly because they were the three where attendance was commanded by God. That's the Passover, the Feast of Pentecost and the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. They're the three that God insisted that everybody attend. Now the Feast of Passover, of course, was celebrated, celebrated their liberation from captivity in Egypt. 
In the very first Passover feast in Egypt, they sacrificed a lamb and painted some of the blood of that lamb on the doorposts and the lintels of the door to their houses. The purpose in doing that was so that when the angel of the Lord came to kill the firstborn of every household, he would see the blood on their doorway and he would pass over that house. The blood on their doorway was their protection from death in the household. There was more to the Passover than this, of course. It's, there's a huge amount of symbolism in the Passover and in the Passover feast that I won't go into here today. But the Passover was the most important of all the feasts. And it's the most celebrated to this day by the Jews who call it Pesach. And uh, Christians celebrate the Passover in their own way at Easter. Now the next major feast was the Feast of Pentecost which was celebrated 50 days after Passover. Pentecostos being the Greek word that means 50th. The 50th day after that first Passover was when Moses went up Mount Sinai to receive the law from God so that he could deliver it to the people. Now Pentecost was also known as the Feast of Weeks and the Day of First Fruits. The Jews call it Shavuot today and still celebrate it. Pentecost celebrated the beginning of the harvest of the first crops for the season. The first fruits were collected as a promise of more to come. Now that first fruits reference becomes significant if you think back to our study of 1 Corinthians 15 at the beginning of the year. You may recall 1 Corinthians 15.20 tells us that in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, I talked then that since Christ was the first fruits of those who had died, that his resurrection guaranteed that there would be more to come, that all believers would be resurrected to a new life. The day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 graphically illustrates this when 3,000 people in one day were raised from spiritual death to life by the Holy Spirit through the word that Peter delivered to the people. Now a day will come when all believers will be raised back to life from physical death and be given new bodies and thus complete this picture that goes back thousands of years. Then we come to the third important feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the one we're looking at here in John chapter 7. It's also known as the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Ingathering. I'll use those names interchangeably today, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Ingathering. This feast occurred six months after Passover, so it was around about October. It came at the end of the harvest season, when all the crops had been gathered in, hence the ingathering. It celebrated God's provision, not only during the now-completed harvest, but also looking back to his provision for them when they travelled through the wilderness after their liberation from slavery under Pharaoh. The Jews still celebrate this one today, calling it Sukkot today. Now understanding the background to this feast will give us some insight into some of the events and some of the things that Jesus says in John chapter 7 and John chapter 8. The Feast of Tabernacles was the most popular because it was an occasion of great joy. People loved coming up to Jerusalem for this feast. 
This feast was so popular that Jerusalem's population swelled from maybe as little as 70 or so thousand people, normally to as many as 2 million people for that week. By modern standards, Jerusalem would have been a large country town most of the year, with a population maybe the size of Ballarat, although packed into a much smaller area than Ballarat is, of course. But during the Feast of Tabernacles, it swelled to a population the size of a city like Brisbane or Perth. So you can imagine the crowds. You can imagine the noise. You can imagine the strain on resources like food and water and accommodation. Well, actually, accommodation wasn't a problem. People brought their own along. It was part of the festivities and part of the reason it was called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. Now, the people were commanded to live in booths tabernacles for the week to remind them <coughs> excuse me, of their travels in the wilderness after the Lord delivered them from slavery in Egypt. These booths were also a reminder of the temporary nature of life. The Apostle Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where he writes of our bodies being tents, tabernacles, temporary dwelling places. Now these booths were small shelters that they would build out of tree branches on the roof of their house or in laneways, in yards, in parks, wherever they could find space. Imagine two million people trying to cram into Jerusalem for that week and finding places to sleep and stay. Think of going camping in a tent on your holidays to give you a modern example of living in booths. It was all part of the fun of the feast. Now this feast is the only extended feast. It lasts for eight days. The first day was a Sabbath rest. The eighth day was a Sabbath rest also. But in between, there was much celebrating and, and great joy. And there were two rituals conducted during this feast that are particularly significant for us. So I'll describe the first of these shortly, but let's look at our text for today. John chapter 7 verse 38 where on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus didn't arrive at the feast, until halfway through. Assuming the feast started on the previous Saturday, he probably arrived on the Tuesday. Now it's the end of the week-long celebration. There's some uncertainty about whether the last day, the great day, is the following Friday, the seventh day, or the Saturday, the eighth day. Technically, the last day is the eighth day, but the great day is the seventh day, because that's the day when the most significant of the rituals and ceremonies occurred. Either way, it doesn't make too much difference to us, but it does mean that the setting is slightly different for when Jesus delivers his statements. In the first of the rituals, which was called the drawing out of water, the high priest, accompanied by crowds of people, would go to the pool of Siloam to collect water in a golden vessel. While he was drawing the water, the crowd would chant, Isaiah 12, uh, sorry, Isaiah 12, verse 3, 
With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. One author points out that Jerusalem's water supply was from this pool and the Gihon spring that fed it. Therefore, this water was precious. It was the sole source of life and refreshment. When people asked why the ritual was called the drawing out of water, they were told because of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. The water symbolised the Holy Spirit, the only true source of life. Now as the priest carried the water back through the water gate into the temple, the crowd sang the Hallel Psalms, as they're known, that Psalm 113 through to Psalm 118, which coincidentally we're reading through together at the moment at the start of our Sunday services. Adriana read the first one of these last week, Psalm 113, and the Hillel Psalms will take us through to around about the middle of July. <clears throat> Arriving back at the temple, the priest would pour the water out into a silver basin that had a hole in the bottom, out of which the water would flow. They did this once a day for the first six days. Then on the seventh day, they did it seven times. It was all accompanied by the Levites and the people singing and chanting and blowing trumpets and playing music. At the end of the ceremony, a great hush descended on the crowd as they reflected on the significance of the ritual. It sounds like a strange ritual to our ears, but to the Jews it contained much symbolism. Imagery which goes back to Exodus chapter 17. You'd probably remember that event. The people had run out of water during their travels through the desert and the wilderness and there were no rivers or lakes anywhere nearby. They made their complaints made known loudly to Moses, whose name incidentally means drawn out of water. They accused him of deliberately leading them out there to die of thirst. So the Lord told Moses to strike a rock with his rod. And when he did, streams of life-giving water gushed out of the rock, enough to provide for millions of travellers and all of their livestock. This was no mere dribble of water. This was a torrent of water, a river of water that gushed out of this rock. Remember that as we get further into this passage today. This ritual then, was for them a yearly reminder that God had provided water for them out of a rock in the wilderness. It also referred symbolically to the coming messianic age when another rock would be struck, releasing streams of life-giving water to flow out over the whole earth. Paul points out in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4, they all drank from the same spiritual rock. Uh, they all drank, sorry, the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. There was also an expectation at this time of year, every year, that when the Christ finally came, he would come to the temple during this very feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. So there wasn't only the symbolic reminders of God's provision for them, there was also the hope with each passing festival that deliverance would finally come. And there was also the reminder when it was all over that deliverance had failed to come yet again. 
There was another important ritual during this feast which involved lighting lamps in the temple courts. We'll look at that ritual a bit more in a future message when we get to John chapter 8. It provides the background for another of Jesus' great sayings and claims. John 7.37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, if Jesus did this on the seventh day of the feast, it's most likely that he waited until the hush had descended on all the people at the completion of the ceremonies, when everything was silent. Or if he did it on the eighth day, the closing Sabbath, then the water drawing and water pouring ceremony weren't happening anymore. They all finished yesterday. The people are now remembering and reflecting on the ceremony, but they're not witnessing it anymore. Either way, they've had a reminder of God's provision and God's promise, but not yet the fulfilment of it. The water has stopped flowing and they only have the prospect of dryness for another year. But then Jesus stands up. To get everyone's attention, he stands up, which was an unusual posture for teachers in those days. They usually taught sitting down, but Jesus stands up and he cries out his declaration. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, cries out doesn't really give us the full force of what Jesus does here. He shouts and he shouts loudly. Pay attention. This is important. Listen to me, he shouts. He says, in effect, you conduct this ritual every year. It reminds you of your thirst for salvation. And every year you go away thirsty. But not anymore. The thirst quencher has arrived. Come to me. I will quench your thirst forever. Now we know from last week that Jesus' statements during this feast caused division among the people. Some think he must be the promised Christ. Some think otherwise. They ignore him or they reject him. The religious leaders are so enraged by what he has to say that they determine to kill him. Because this, again, is a bold claim. Jesus is here claiming to be the one that this 1,500-year-old ritual has been pointing to all along. If it's not true, that's arrogance. Jesus is claiming to be the saviour that they've been looking for since Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And Jesus is also reminding them of a passage in Isaiah 44, which says, But hear now, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen, thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Jesus here is claiming to be the source, the only source of true and eternal satisfaction. He's claiming to be the Lord who spoke in Isaiah 44. He's claiming to be Yahweh God himself. No wonder there was division among the people. Jesus is still that source, that only source of satisfaction. 
But we too often look to quench our inner thirst in places other than him. We all, that's all of humanity, look to other sources first to quench our thirst. That's assuming, of course, that we even realise that we're thirsty in the first place. Frequently we don't even recognise that that's the case. But every ailment has its symptoms, including thirst. And this thirst can be diagnosed by our actions. So how does this thirst reveal itself? It shows itself in our quest for money, for more money. Not content with what we have, we look for and even scheme for more. Now money in itself is not evil, we know that, scripture says that. But sometimes that quest for money can take an evil turn, can lead us into exploitation and crime to get more. It's a symptom of a thirsty soul. Or maybe we show our thirst by chasing after new experiences, thrill-seeking, dangerous stunts, all to gain that adrenaline rush that makes us feel like we're alive. This too can have an evil side, <clears throat> a dangerous side, <clears throat> excuse me, a side that can not only harm us physically, but can draw others into harm as well. Again, it's a symptom of a thirsty soul. Maybe it reveals itself in pleasure-seeking, drug-taking, sexual activity, what they used to call debauchery. It's another manifestation of a thirsty soul. Could be social climbing or power-seeking. There's a thirsty soul in there. There are plenty of more ways that our inner thirst reveals itself seeking honour, respect, so many other ways, in one way or another, these things all reveal our inner thirst. But our attempts to quench these thirsts are futile. They always demand more. They always dangle that carrot of satisfaction just out of reach, so that when you get the more that you thought you needed, that you thought would satisfy, you find you still need just a little bit more again. Then I'll be satisfied, we think. But it never quite comes. Not so with Jesus. He offers to quench our thirst forever. It's a free offer. It's for anyone. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. No one is excluded from this offer. But it's a conditional offer. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Only those who recognise their thirst and so come to him will have that thirst quenched. You can come to Jesus out of curiosity, as Nicodemus did in chapter 3 of John. But Jesus won't quench the thirst of the merely curious. You can come to him accusing, like the scribes and the Pharisees but he won't quench your thirst. You can come to him mocking, like his brothers did at the start of this chapter. He won't quench your thirst either. But come to him acknowledging your inner thirst, asking him to quench it, and he will. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Jesus said, for they shall be satisfied. What does it mean? to hunger and thirst for righteousness then. It means that 
Like a tax collector praying at the temple, you recognize your brokenness, your sin, your unrighteousness. The tax collector standing far off, it tells us in that that passage, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. This man knew he was thirsty. And in his desperation, he knew where to go to quench his thirst. He went to God. By way of contrast, the Pharisee in that account didn't have a thirst, or at least he didn't realise that he had a thirst, or he refused to admit that he had a thirst. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. And I give tithes of all that I get, he says. God, I don't need any of your righteousness. I've got plenty of my own, thank you very much, is what the Pharisee is saying. Only one of these men went home justified, Jesus tells us, went home declared righteous. And it wasn't the one who didn't think he was thirsty. So there's a condition to this offer. You must recognise your thirst and come to him to quench it. J.C. Ryle said, Those words, let him come unto me, are few and very simple. But they settle a mighty question, which all the wisdom of Greek and Roman philosophers, and we might add all the modern day psychiatrists, could never settle. They show how man can have peace with God. They show that peace is to be had in Christ by trusting in him as our mediator and substitute. In one word, by believing. To come to Christ is to believe on him. And to believe on him is to come. The remedy may seem a very simple one, too simple to be true. But there is no other remedy than this. And all the wisdom in the world can never find a flaw in it or devise a better remedy. Come to Christ. Believe on him. Put your trust in him. Admitting your flaws, your failures, your sin. And he will quench your thirst forever. But he does more than that. In verse 38 he says, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So your inner thirst will be quenched. And not only will you have enough to get by today, you won't need any to, for tomorrow because it won't run out and you'll have an ever-flowing, overflowing abundance of water to share with others. Out of your heart, out of the depths of your inner being will flow rivers of living water. This life-giving water will well up from within you. It's not the first time that Jesus has made an offer like this. Remember back in chapter 4, he said to the woman at the well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
Now this he said about the Spirit, John 7.39, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. There is a source of inner satisfaction for our inner thirst that can, cannot, that can be sorry, found within. But it's not found within everyone, in spite of what some people would like to believe. It's no good looking within ourselves to find the God within or any other such New Age nonsense. Now the source of that inner river is the Holy Spirit, with whom those who believed in him, in Jesus, were to receive. This inner satisfaction is only offered to those who believe in him. No one else, only those who put their trust in Jesus Christ. Until you do that, you'll continue to thirst and you'll continue to seek other sources to quench your thirst. Now at this point in time, the Holy Spirit hadn't yet been poured out in the way that he was to come. He'd always been operative in the world, of course, and in people and through people. But things were going to change in the months to come. Jesus told his disciples in John 14, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. At this stage, it seems the Holy Spirit was working with them and through them, but in the near future, the Holy Spirit will move from dwelling with them and will take up residence in them. So the source of these inner rivers of living water isn't us. It isn't our knowledge of the Bible. It isn't our godly behaviour and our obedience. It isn't our skill or our hard work or our talent or our charisma. The source is the Holy Spirit, who will rise up within us and overflow out of us. A day was coming, was not yet here, when the Holy Spirit would be poured out on many, 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, who all came to believe in salvation, had their inner thirst quenched that day. And what came from that outpouring of the Holy Spirit? The gospel of Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, began to be preached to all nations. It burst out of them. It couldn't be contained. A gospel of repentance and forgiveness for sins in his name was proclaimed and continues to be proclaimed to this day to every tribe and language and people and nation on the face of the earth. Luke recorded Jesus saying in Luke 6.45, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the overflow of his heart... His mouth speaks. That's why it's rivers of living water gushing out, not just a personal well within. Rivers run constantly, bringing fresh water to a parched landscape. A river that doesn't run is not a river. It's a lake or a pond or a puddle. Rivers flow. Rivers flow from their place of origin to a different point entirely. Have you ever noticed that rivers don't stay at the spring that they arise from? 
and rivers also break their banks every once in a while, flooding the surrounding area. We're given a river within because it will provide enough for ourselves and an abundance more to share with others. We'll have rivers of life, not just wells, but rivers to share with the thirsty. And these rivers never run out because their source is the infinite God. There'll be no need to dam this river to keep it for our own purposes, lest it all run away from us. Did you realise that? Did you realise that you, assuming you are a Christian, are saved not just for your own sake? You're also saved for the sake of others. You're saved so that you can be the source of life-giving water to the thirsty and a deliverer of the bread of life to the hungry. Peter said to Jesus back in John 6.68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So who has the words of eternal life today? Ultimately, of course, it's the Bible which contains the unfailing word of God. And it's the Holy Spirit who works this word into our hearts. But in the world today, he brings that word to others through us. Paul wrote in Romans 10, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Friends, we have the words of eternal life. They're not our words, of course. They're his words. Still, it's our privilege and our responsibility to share these words of eternal life with others. One of the reasons why the prosperity gospel is an abomination is that it seeks God for what we can get for ourselves. The prosperity gospel is selfish. And God has no interest in fulfilling our selfish desires. Rather, God blesses us so that we can be a blessing to others. He gives us rivers of living water within so that rivers can flow out to other people. If our deepest thirst is quenched by this river, what more could we possibly want? Now a question each one of us needs to ask ourselves is this. If all my wealth evaporated in an instant, if I lost my home, my car, if I lost my job and my friends, if I lost my public voice and my freedoms, if my health deteriorated dramatically overnight, would Christ be enough for me? Would I be satisfied and content just to have him? Or would I be longing for more? The answer to that question will give you a hint as to whether you really have come to drink of him. It's a serious question. Is Christ enough for you? Is he enough for me? 
I hope so. My experience has been that since Christ quenched my thirst 30-odd years ago, that there's nothing else that really compares to him. There have been plenty of things I've been interested in and sidetracked by, of course, but ultimately, I always find myself drawn back to him, for nothing else really satisfies. Is that your experience too? If it isn't, I invite you today to come to him, come to Christ, admit your thirst, admit your need for living water, acknowledge your failure, your brokenness, your sin. Like the tax collector at the temple, cry out, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus Christ will wash away your sin by his blood shed on the cross, and he will change your heart from one that chases after fleeting pleasures of this world that could never satisfy to a heart that finds its greatest delight in him. And he'll cause those rivers of living water to rise up within you to not only quench your thirst, but to overflow to other people, to show them where they can quench their thirst also. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that wells up within us because of the work you have done on that cross, Jesus, pouring out your blood to cover over our sins, to reconcile us to God and for putting your Holy Spirit within us, changing our heart from hard hearts, selfish hearts, to hearts that long for you. As a deer pants for water, so my soul longs for you, O God, it says in the Psalms. Lord, we thank you that our soul longs for you above all things now. And Lord, we pray that you'll cause this river to rise up with us, within us and overflow out of us Lord in a greater flow of water than ever before that we might provide water the waters of life to our friends to our family to our workmates to our acquaintances to our community those who have yet to taste the sweet waters of eternal life Lord we Thank you that this river never runs out. It comes from an eternal God who has an eternal supply. So Lord, we pray that you'll cause that water to wash over us and out of us and through our communities, Lord. Rise up like a flood, Lord, in our communities so that people will have their thirst quenched by you and not by things that don't last. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us your word, a reliable word, an unchanging word, an unbreakable word. And Lord, we thank you that you work that word into our hearts, making us more and more like Jesus Christ every day, conforming us to his image 
And Lord, we look forward to that day when we see you face to face and uh, we see the river flow out from the temple of God and the tree of life standing there for us to eat of every day for eternity, Lord. Jesus, we pray, come again, Lord. Come again. Complete the work you've begun on this earth and promise to bring to completion. But Lord, would you come again, but not before you save our family and our friends and quench their thirst with living water. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.